0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host, Craig Blumenschein. Happy Thursday, Ashley. Yes, thank you. Coming up in the second half of today's show, Craig, you've got an interesting story here. High-tech techniques for fighting bacteria.
1: So much interesting work is going on at the University of North Dakota's BioInnovation Zone. We're going to talk CSI, actually, <laughs> but it's not what you think. But I can say there CSI IRL in real life. <laughs> in real life, there are 7.6 million reasons, though, why this has become a big deal there, and we're going to bring that story after the news.
0: But first, we're going to learn about the League of Cities, how cities and towns can join forces to advocate for their residents. Todd Phelan is president of the Board of Directors of the North Dakota League of Cities, representing about 350 cities, towns, and even park districts.
1: In this excerpt from the Prairie Polls television show with host John Harris, Phelan shares the strategic goals as well as the unique challenges and opportunities facing towns big and small in North Dakota.
2: Our guest is the president of the Board of Directors of the North Dakota League of Cities, Todd Phelan. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell the folks a little bit about yourself, maybe your background. Sure, well, I'm a proud North
3: Dakotan. I grew up in Mandan, North Dakota, so I'm proud in night. And uh, I, now I work for the city of Grand Forks, and I've been there for a couple decades now. I've been there as a city administrator for 10 plus years, and prior to that I was a public works director for 12 years, and so I've had a long tenure at the city of Grand Forks, sometimes thriving and sometimes surviving, but I've worked uh, a long time in local government, which I have a lot of passion and love for. And I really started at the city of Grand Forks after the flood and I, that's how I got my start there and uh, I've had a really great career and uh, lots of love for uh, Grand Forks and local government.
2: Today, we're here to talk about your job on the North Dakota League of Cities. So tell us a little bit about how being selected as the new as the president, how did that come about?
3: Sure, well, you know, we have a terrific board and, and the board is made up of uh, the various regions. We have six regions throughout the state from north to south, the east to west small cities, larger cities. You know, over the last several years, I've served on the board and eventually made my way to become the president, so you gotta get nominated, and then at the annual meeting, you get uh, voted in, and so I did uh, conclude somebody's uh, previous term, and then in September, I got another full one-year term, so it's a terrific board made up of various cities across the state and also elected and appointed leaders throughout the state.
2: What is the North Dakota League of Cities? Well,
3: the North Dakota League of Cities really were uh, intent to. It's a nonprofit representing cities across the state. You know, we're made up of I think over 350 cities. Thing is that we also have park districts. So, within uh, city government, we also have park districts, and really we're in, intended to represent cities, park districts, provide educational opportunities. And just provide general representation research and development for cities across the uh, state of north dakota
2: when was it founded sort of what are the origins of it well that was a great question
3: you know i had to look up that myself <laughs> but you know we were founded in 1912 in september of that year the first meeting was in grand forks that year and you know it's it's hard to believe 1912 uh, pre-world war ii and uh, world war one so we've had a long founding of over 100 years and uh, and it's interesting to note at the first meeting, as I say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Really the intent of the League of City being formed was to have a unified voice and also for information sharing from large cities to smaller cities. And so as we look at what we're doing today at the League of Cities, it's almost the same of what we've done. Um, we, we said we would do it in 1912. So I suspect if we're here 100 years from now, we will probably wanna have a unified voice and communicate and share information across the state of North Dakota.
2: I've been told and understand implementing a, a strategic plan is a big goal for you, is, is that correct? Sure, well, you know, we have a new executive director, relatively new, and Matt Gardner, he came from the,
3: uh, uh, the state chamber, and so um, um, he's really reinvigorated uh, cities are across the state and our board, and so we really wanna further ensure our success, and we have lots of momentum at the League of Cities, and so we really wanna empower local leadership continue to thrive as an organization and really enhance our educational opportunities and our advocacy throughout the state of North Dakota on behalf of the city, so we're really engaged in that. Uh, Some of the specific things we're doing right now, we have elections coming up in June, local elections are held in June, so we're gearing up for that, both for appointed and elected officials. We move forward and really trying to enhance our educational opportunities. And then finally, uh, you know, um, next year will be a legislative session. So we're gonna gear up for some advocacy and continue to monitor uh, interim committees and really get engaged with uh, looking forward to that January of 25 and and new session and and make sure that we're all engaged uh, with our our state elected officials in in what we're doing as city uh, Mm -hmm. governments.
2: What are the biggest challenges for the bigger cities, the larger populated areas? You know, um, if you look at you know a lot of our challenges in North Dakota
3: are similar probably to any town USA. You know, we have challenges with infrastructure, public safety, workforce development, and anyone know, when I say workforce development, that includes uh, childcare and all the things that we're working on, challenges with, you know, mental health, homelessness. When you work in city government, you know, you're really closest to the people, you're closest to the issues. And we have to face those all those um, particular issues. And um, I think if you look at large and small cities, you know, it's probably more of a gradation of what they are. I think smaller cities have those same issues. And we're really fortunate as local government that we have such a great partner in the state of North Dakota. And all those things I just mentioned, from infrastructure to public safety, to workforce development, to homelessness, Those are all partnered uh, solutions that we're working on with the state of North Dakota, whether that's with um, the governor's office or state agencies or the North Dakota legislature, really have a great partnership in trying to um, find solutions in all those areas.
2: What about the smaller towns? What are their challenges? As I mentioned, I think they have similar
3: issues to us, but I think they have more specific issues regarding, you know, how do they attract workforce? How do they retain workforce? How can they find childcare? How can they keep economic development going? And you know, if you look at some of the larger cities where there's Fargo, Bismarck, Grand Forks, Minot, we certainly have some advantages to the smaller communities. We have more of a wherewithal, we have more resources, and that's the power of the League of Cities is that we really wanna share and help all cities throughout the state. But because something will happen at this, at a local, government that's smaller, you know, maybe a grocery store is really important, maybe a convenience store is really important to maintain resilience in their community and some enhancements, whereas a larger city, you know, those aren't going to be top of mind issues. So we really, as a part of a league, have to understand larger cities, medium cities and smaller cities what their needs are so that we're meeting the needs for all communities throughout the state.
2: What are the, some of the services that you provide to these cities? Number one, you know, we want to advocate uh,
3: um, on behalf of cities and really let um, um, state government and our other stakeholders know what's going on with the various communities. We want to, the other large thing is uh, education. And a lot of our communities uh, really rely upon the League of Delivering Training, Educational uh, Assistance. And then finally, you know, really being a resource, a day-to-day resource, whether it's policy development, uh, researching various things that are going on. That's really intended on the league and I think we have lots of positive, we've received lots of positive reinforcement from communities across the state that we're doing a good job. But as again, as part of our strategic plan, we wanna make sure we're really enhancing that because you know we have workforce challenges throughout the state of North Dakota and in our cities and really the league needs to be that glue to keep our communities engaged and from leadership, enhanced with advocacy and, and really educated because we want everyone to succeed in North Dakota.
2: Is everybody, uh, every city automatically a member? How do they become a member of the North yeah, Dakota Legal City? It has to be a member and you know, there is a fee to be a membership. We're our membership, largely
3: a membership driven um, organization and that's how we pay the bills and do all the various programming and advocacy and research and development. But you know, we have most of the cities in North Dakota are involved and that's why we have, you know, over 350 cities. Um, and that means it's just not the Fargo's and Grand Forks and Minnesota Minor. there's lots of smaller cities that Uh, really make up the league and are the strength of the league of uh, cities of North Dakota.
2: I understand that you have an upcoming spring workshop. Can you tell us about that? We do, we have a spring workshop and this year
3: it's gonna be in Minot. And we're really gonna focus on, um, I would say really the glue of a lot, most cities are the city auditors. So there's gonna be a lot of discussion on city finances and all the things that um, city auditors do to keep cities moving from budgeting to Reporting to running elections, we keep you know city halls functioning very well throughout the state, and then the other part is the elected officials are going to just do some elected official uh, training and you know how best uh, you can do to be a, a really effective elected official, and so those will be well timed in advance of our June elections, and so we're trying to do both you know the day-to-day operation of our city auditors and also elected officials that really provide the policy direction in our communities.
2: Can you talk about If I Were Mayor essay contest? Yes. What's that about, Who's, who are you targeting? Who, who are you yeah. asking to write these essays? Well, it's for third and seventh graders.
3: Um, we almost get a, a thousand uh, students that submit essays. Well, for both third and seventh, I think we had over well over 60 schools that participated. And really, you know, as part of our educational engagement, most kids who grow up to be adults, are gonna live in cities and that's really gonna be their first touch with government and we wanna make sure we capture that early. And uh, part of the essay is you know, um, what makes their city great? And if they were mayor, what would they do to enhance and make their cities better? And so we're really trying to engage young people along the way and get them involved
2: in city government,
3: have them have a better understanding in their communities.
2: Do you have the opportunity to go out and visit with other cities and talk with them and see what they're all about? You know, number one, we have a diverse
3: board. It's six regions throughout the state, from small cities to larger cities. The other thing that we do, we mentioned the spring workshop that we're gonna do in Minot. Uh, We have an annual conference. Every September 2 this year, it's going to be in, in Grand Forks. In June, we're gonna be having you know, six sessions throughout the various regions and really engaging various regions regarding uh, what's going on in their communities, things that we can do to improve the League of Cities and really also gearing up for the upcoming legislative session. How many staff do you have
2: with the League of Cities?
3: We have four staff members, so we have a small but mighty and terrific staff. You know, Matt is our relatively new executive director, came from the state chamber and has really moved us forward been a great partner with other stakeholder groups we have uh, we have a deputy director and uh, Stephanie dasinger uh, Igabretson and she's also our staff attorney so we're really fortunate not only have a deputy director but she's our staff attorney and when you re- work with various cities you know a lot of cities don't have city attorneys and so sh- she's really relied upon to provide assistance and guidance um, throughout the state of North Dakota she's been really uh, great we have a, a, a lady named Carissa um, Richter, who is our membership uh, manager, and really is the kind of go-to person to get things uh, done in the organization, and has been there for some time, and it is terrific. And then we have Jennifer McKelkey who is our communications and educational uh, manager. So those are the four folks that get a lot of things done. Uh, we do have an engaged board, and so we, I would say we have more of a working board, too. Uh, and that's important, especially when you have four staff. The office is located in Bismarck, is where the league's office is, and is really a a great center point and um, with a great staff. And uh, we do a lot of things with uh, four members, so we're really fortunate to have the people we do.
2: What about North Dakota's economic climate? What's it like in your opinion, I guess? I
3: uh, I think really we're on a time high, and if you look back to the pandemic and all the doubt that we had in, in, in our country, in our state, and, you know, to be frank, in our world, and, you know, North Dakota's performed very well. Uh, through the pandemic, and I think that helped us get out of the pandemic. And if you look at where we're at economically, um, you know, gain, uh, gaining in population. I think uh, we have a new record of population, and most of that population is in cities, uh, which um, really is the economic driver of the state of North Dakota. Um, most of the people in North Dakota live in cities. And then the other thing is, you know, one of the indicators of economic health is our sales taxes is growing, growing in throughout the um, state of North Dakota, growing in our cities. And it shows that we really are thriving now coming out of this pandemic. And all the investments that we made in cities and, and partnering with the state really has paid off is because we really created a lot of momentum in our state. We've diversified our economy. And um, I dare say um, the really the strength of the state of North Dakota are, is cities and because that's where a lot of the economic activity is taking place in North Dakota and we're really proud to to represent cities.
2: What kind of uh, city awards are given out each year? I understand you do some of that. We do, yep. We recognize both
3: appointed and uh, elected officials. So, um, you know, appointed official would be, a lot lot of times, you know, the local city auditor who's been there for some time and done great work, they get recognized. um, Elected officials that have served um, and given so much of their time and energy and, and talent, uh, get recognized at our annual c- conference. And then also cities, we do have a city of the year award and at the, um, at the last conference this past September in Bismarck, uh, uh, the city of Gilby was recognized. And so that's a small community north and uh, a little bit east of Grand Forks, but they were recognized by uh, all the Main Street um, things that they have done. And obviously Governor Burgum has been a big proponent of the Main Street Initiative. And they really highlighted some of the great things that they're doing from you know some of the infrastructure development, their Main Street small businesses they were developing and bringing back young families um, to live in Gilby. And so they were recognized and it was a real proud moment for uh, this, uh, the small city of Gilby and all that they're doing and really revitalizing community, bringing young folks in and and who would have ever thought, you know, a lot of times if you were, I grew up in the eighties in North Dakota and people were fleeing North Dakota and to be here in the 2020s and people are moving back to small communities and revitalizing, um, Gilby really represented that as a, a great story.
2: What is the leadership exchange program? Well,
3: you know, what we try to do, you know, a lot of times you want a mentor, you know, or at least, you know, um, new people become appointed officials, um, you know, like a city auditor, or you become an elected official, whether you're with a city council, commissioner, mayor. And really that program is to align people, um, if they would like, with experienced folks that can provide them some guidance um, and some thoughts so that they can be as successful as possible. You know, really going back to 1912 of, Really, the goal was unif- have a unified voice, but that secondary issue was let's share information throughout the state, um, so that if somebody knows something, let's share that information, so that we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. We'd all all have to have painful experiences. Maybe there's a few experiences we can uh, painful experiences we can avoid because others have gone before us, and so we're still doing that um, in 2024 now. What we were you know, a spouse to do in 1912. So really that's intended to get people moving forward and put put them at ease that they're gonna be successful and provide some guidance along the way.
2: How does the league lobby and interact with the state legislature? Yeah, well, we're,
3: you know, we're really the voice of city government and um, we're fortunate to have um, really strong relationships with uh, the governor's office, state agencies and in the, in the North Dakota legislature. And so we're called upon to um, testify Um, whether it's Matt Gardner as our executive director, or even board members, or cities across the state, about how certain uh, policies, procedures, funding uh, formulas will impact cities and provide uh, that trusted word. And uh, we really are proud that uh, we are the trusted uh, organization to speak on behalf of cities. We're really humbled and honored that um, our state government um, respects us, what we're doing in city government. really appreciates what we're doing and wants to really know our um, values, our opinion, um, whether it's testifying at interim committees or during the legislative session, or you know, just getting phone calls of how various things that they're thinking about and how that would impact uh, cities. And we've made a lot of strides working um, over the last uh, several years, working the state with um, various funding programs, whether that's transportation funding, water funding, Um, Other infrastructure funding, we've done a lot of uh, partnerships with the state of North Dakota and it's really one of the advantages that we have in North Dakota that we can work with our state government. We have great partnerships um, with the cities and states. And uh, you know, we're a large enough state to get things done, but we're small enough to really engage and and get things done. So it's really a strategic advantage we have in North Dakota.
2: Todd, we are out of time, so if people want more information, where can they go? Please go to the website, North Dakota League of Cities, or
3: ndlc.org. And you'll find all the information, and and you can always uh, simply call us. The number's on the website, and somebody will answer the call and get you the answers that you need. And we think a lot of city government, and that's our home. Well,
2: Todd, we thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Todd Phelan, President of the Board of Directors of the North Dakota League of Cities in conversation with Prairie Pulse host, John Harris. Coming
1: up next on Main Street, from east to west, how the railroads brought fashions of the East to North Dakota. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Bill Dean, Realtor Broker with Alliance Real Estate of Bismarck. Buying, selling, investing, and estate planning. Information can be found at BillDeanHomes.com. And by North Dakota United, an organization of over 11,000 education and public employees serving the public every step of the way. Information
0: available at NDUnited.org. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. We have habits, and they can serve us, but sometimes they deserve a second look. In this week's Plainsfolk essay, historian Dr. Tom Ezern shares when marriage proposals take a 180 in Leaping at the Chance for Romance.
4: Western cities on railroad lines emulated whatever was au courant in cities back east. So, in 1876, the editor of the Bismarck Tribune inquired... Why can't the ladies of Bismarck organize a leap year ball? In style, you know. Ladies come after the dear young fellows, escort them to the hall, fetch the ices, and so on. In the East, such balls were society affairs, with well-heeled ladies forming committees to see to the elegant details, then, on the appointed night, showing up for their bows with coaches. In to, to Territory, Mandan stole the march on Bismarck for the first recorded leap year ball in March of 1860. It seems to have come about with some inadvertence, as a young homesteading couple was planning to get married at the Northwestern Hotel, and the owners, the Burns, decided to draw a crowd by wrapping a leap year ball around the ceremony, thus cleverly enlisting the young women of Mandan to turn out the crowd for them. Thereafter, good sized towns in the territory commonly generated leap-year gatherings, either at hotels or in public halls. Bismarck itself got into the game in 1880 with an affair at the Sheridan House, for which the young ladies who had charge of the ceremonies, we read, were commended for their organizational skills, and the young gentlemen were very thankful. Jamestown took the cake for such events with a fantastic, elaborately decorated affair at the Opera House in 1892. Smaller towns soon got on the bandwagon. A note in the Walhalla paper in 1884 indicates there was something of a circuit of leap year events by which young women transported their fellows town to town. Several ladies and gentlemen from Carlisle, we read, attended the leap year ball at Bathgate and the calico ball at Hamilton and report a very enjoyable evening at both places. There are hints that small-town leap-year balls could become raucous. A report from Tower City in 1884 made sport of the young lady who, having danced the night away, could not find her overshoes to wear home in the morning, only to discover they had been on her dancing feet all along. The custom of leap-year balls faded in the late 19th century, but the custom of leap-year proposals remained. This generally lighthearted practice is said to have originated in Ireland in the 5th century, the idea being that on February 29th, it was permissible for a woman to ask a man to marry. By the settlement era on the prairies, the window for female marriage proposals was considered to extend for the full leap year. Mostly, it seems, leap year proposals were the pretext for local gossip and jokes. A report from Cooperstown in March 1888 asserted, A beautiful and popular young man at St. Ignace has already had seven leap year proposals. A few years later, press reports circulated that the popular young store clerk and assistant postmaster down at Walhalla is busily engaged every day receiving leap year proposals. We do not read of such matches following through to happily ever after. But, romantic that I am, I would like to think that this happened. I take some hope from an item in the Golden Valley Chronicle of the 16th of January, 1916. It recounts a house party, at which we read, several leap year proposals were extended to the young men. The reporter noticed a happy smile on the countenances, of our would-be Benedict's. I wish he had included the names of the leap-year suitors and the would-be Benedict's. I would look them up in local records and see what became of them. Perhaps I would be disappointed, but I would like to learn they lived long and happy lives together, or if not, at least died young in love in love story fashion. Surely we're entitled to a happy ending at least every four years.
0: Dr. Tom Ezern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Still to come on Main Street, CSI. But it's not what you think, it's high tech from the University of North Dakota's bio-innovation zone. That's after this.
5: Hi, I'm uh, Jack Selesky. I'm the former editorial page editor and a current columnist for the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead. And I've been a newspaper man for life. But no matter what the media and public radio is included, journalism is a vital pillar of democracy. We're seeing what happens with a superpower whose leader goes unchecked by a free and independent press. We've seen democracy and the media under attack right here in this country. It is always important to support your trusted sources of journalism. So keep reading and subscribing to your area newspapers, digital or in print. Become a member of your local public radio station, Prairie Public. And we journalists will continue to seek the truth no matter what we uncover.
1: This is Main Street on Prairie Public, I'm Craig Blumenshine. The University of North Dakota has been awarded a $7.6 million contract by the U.S. Army for developing a contamination and sanitation inspection system, CSI. This system was developed with AI and machine learning and can detect and disinfect contaminants like saliva, fecal matter, and bacteria on various services, has potential applications in military, healthcare, and food safety environments. Dr. Kuyar Tavakolian is an associate professor in the College of Engineering and Mines and also the director of the Bioinnovation Zone, Biz, at the University of North Dakota. We are welcome to Main Street. Thank you very much, Greg. I think I want to start the conversation with a $7.6 million contract you've been awarded by the U.S. Army to develop what is really an innovative contamination and sanitation inspection, CSI system, if you will. Give me that project's overview, if you could.
6: Sure. Actually, the TFI system, the origins of it go to uh, ARS lab at USDA. Uh, They had a patent, the technology that they worked on for a few years, and it was there. The patent was with them. And SafetySpec, the the company in North Dakota, went to ARS lab and they started collaborating and they licensed uh, that patent to SafetySpec. And uh, we have been working with SafetySpec since then on many aspects of this technology and many of our PhD students, Uh, master's students, undergraduate students have been working to develop develop different aspects of the technology, including uh, machine vision, uh, AI, um, and um, classification algorithms that we have used in collaboration with the company to detect uh, contamination on different surfaces.
1: And what I saw um, when I was at the lab earlier this year was this device that could see contaminants, and then also, for lack of a better description, zap them or kill them at the viral level, maybe using UV or something
6: similar. Is that right? That's true. So the the device is both detect and zapping. It has both features in it at the same time. So it uses the UV light to also disinfect the surfaces. So what happened was that this was originally developed to detect contamination, food residues for the most part um, at uh, USDA. But when the COVID uh, came uh, the company was we were working with the company on the technology and then we realized that if we change the optics a little bit on the device we will be able to to detect saliva uh, on surfaces as well uh, as well and if you remember in the beginning of the pandemic there was this misconception that we with COVID uh, is viral because we touch surfaces and everybody was so uh, uh, scared about touching surfaces and everybody wanted to disinfect disinfected. So we, we were able to actually detect saliva on surfaces, although it, it could have been there for a long period of time. So the idea was to detect saliva and also disinfect it. And then later on we found out that you get the COVID mostly through your respiratory system. But we didn't stop there. We actually again changed the optics, we changed the algorithms behind it, and then we were able to find fecal matters on uh, carcasses. We went to many of the slaughterhouses here in North Dakota, and we were able to find fecal matter, the ones that uh, the the USda inspector somebody who worked for USDA for 30 years going to different slaughterhouses here in North Dakota trying to detect fecal matter on carcasses sometimes we were able to show him places that there were there, there was fecal matter and he was not able to find it and then we publish on it and then there were companies that actually came to safety spec to see if they can uh, they're, they're trying to uh, come up with uh, a way to license the technology to them and now this one that you see this is with uh, devcom the uh, the project that we have and this is through an OTA mechanism, is, is a contract with DOD, and the idea is to find contamination on dining surfaces in military um, environment. And again, this can be, we, you can change and adjust it to long-term care facilities, for example, hospitals, c- clinical settings. And in bigger space, the whole idea is uh, different materials have different optical signatures. From those optical signatures, you can detect them. One of the products, an extension of this that we are thinking is to detect um, infection on wounds even. Again, it's very similar optical device but different type of algorithms, different type of machine learning that can be adapted for different applications. So this project has brought us variety of sub projects that we are working on uh, using the same technological infrastructure to solve different types of problems.
1: The device that I saw was, I would describe it as maybe smaller than a shoebox, yeah. not not too large, where you could then see and then also, as you say, um, zap, or as I said, zap, something that you're seeing. How small can you see? Are we talking, looking at things, if you're look, finding infection at the viral
6: level, that small? No, you cannot. And, and you don't really need to go to, to the viral level. You are looking for colonies of bacteria. To, to detect that's really that when it gets to um, larger amounts it can be harmful for you so uh no we we are not at that level and i don't think we need to be at that resolution how does uv radiation
1: take care of and clean a surface then in real time
6: so that that's what actually we did a lot of experiments and we had different uh so the technology advancing the past few years uh for uh, the LED technology that was able to image, uh, image UV UV light uh, with very high power in a short period of time. And that provided us some uh, capabilities for disinfection. And we tried that with, with different distances, different power, and different um, concentration of bacteria, the number of colonies. And then we were able to show that there is disinfection capability. Of course... It, this is dependent dependent on this the, the distance and the power that you're using and that's something that we need to take care of in making sure that uh, you you are at the, at the required distance for, for the, and the required amount of time to make sure that you get enough dis- disinfection power and that's an ongoing research. We have already published on it, but a lot of those actually validations were done here at medical school here at U, at UND.
1: The intersection then of this idea, this grant and students, how do students now intersect with this work and bring it forward, improve it, modify it, and make it better?
6: Sure, we have had the students at different levels that they have been involved uh, with this project. We have had uh, masters student who helped with. Um, adapting the technology to different environments. So going to uh, sampling from long-term care facilities that we have uh, ar- around us, or as I said, we had a PhD student who's, uh, a big portion of his PhD was how can we adapt this to uh, slaughterhouses. And we had to go there and find, uh, wait for when they were butchering cows, we had to wait there and then have get a lot of images, and then we had this inspector that was showing us with hand, somebody who was doing this for, for a job for three decades. And then we were trying to train our AI algorithm to learn that process. And then after we had enough number of samples, the algorithm, as I said before, could actually detect places that uh, the the USC inspector could miss. And that was so. We were there. The students are there to, for data collection, for data analysis, to, for publications that come out so the, the people around us would know that this technology exists. So there are different parts of this that the students have been involved and in, they have contributed to.
1: You've mentioned the word AI now a couple times in our interview. Give us an idea from your perspective how quickly this technology is evolving and becoming
6: useful to you and to your students. Actually, we have had, things are going really fast, and as I said, technology also uh, is improving very fast. So, in the, pa- so one of the, in the past, the idea was that we would push the data to a cloud computing platform and do all the analysis there. Now we have really strong edge computing capabilities that have developed during the past few years, which means that all the processing and AI can be implemented locally on the device itself. So you don't need to push all the data out to a cloud computing platform in order to do all those AI and machine learning. Everything can be done locally. And this is actually improving as we speak. The LED sizes that I was just talking about, they're becoming smaller and smaller. That that device that you saw, as you said, this was smaller than a shoebox, it can be even smaller in, I don't know, two, three years.
1: Dr. Kuya Tavakolian serves as an associate professor at the College of Engineering and Mines and is the director of the BioInnovation Zone, BIS, at the University of North Dakota. During our visit to the BIS Zone, we discovered several innovative collaborations between UND students and the local private sector in North Dakota, and these projects include a device capable of predicting pressure sores up to three days in advance, blood warming technology that operates without electricity, and the production of Very Compact Ventilators. We are excited to share these inspiring stories with you soon. Stay tuned for more Main Street.
5: Arts Programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota.
0: When you hear the fanfare, that means it's time to go off to the movies with Matt O'Lean. And Matt, nothing like negative double digits below zero to watch a possibly very depressing film, Anatomy of a Fall.
7: You know, it 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 could be depressing, but I think audiences will like this movie because it is, you know, look, everyone's fascinated with true crime, right? And that's what this movie is about. It's a French film set in the French Alps, a lot of snow, a good, good film to go to, a lot of snow, a lot of cold. And it's directed by J- Justine Triette, French filmmaker who co-wrote, co-wrote the script with Arthur Harari. And, you know, on the surface, it doesn't look like it's anything special. It's a whodunit. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a mystery. It's a courtroom film, yet it feels very fresh how they did this. And basically, if you've seen the trailer, you know within five minutes of the movie, everything is set up for you. So, Sandra Huller, great German actress, for sure will be nominated for Best Actress next week for this movie, plays a writer who lives in the French Alps at this big chalet, chateau, with her husband and their 11 year old son who does not see. He is blind. And within the first five minutes, the husband, who we never see, falls, either falls to his death or is pushed to his death from the top attic of the chalet into the snow. He's dead. That is where the film takes off from there. Did he fall? Did he kill himself? Did the wife do it? So that's the whole premise. So we get courtroom stuff. Is she indicted? Is she not indicted? What happened? And it is just a fascinating kind of slow burn thriller. You're in the spider web. You're wondering what happened. And I think our fascination with true crime is always kind of in the back of my mind, thinking somebody had to do something <laughs> or did or did it or did anything happen? And that's the big mystery of the film that you get to all through the the investigation and in the courtroom, and she hires a lawyer. You're just wondering what happened, but getting there is the fascinating part, Ashley, the mm. courtroom stuff. There's there's an audio tape that's revealed in the court that's fascinating to listen to. Anybody who's ever had marriage problems, it's a hard audio tape to listen to because it is her and her you know, deceased husband having this horrible argument that the courtroom hears and the jury hears, and things get said, and that's a fascinating scene as well the The actor who plays the little kid, Milo Machado Grenier, is wonderful. If he could be a supporting actor nomination, I'd be totally okay with that. I really would. Uh, this is now the frontrunner to win the International Film Oscar. I think it should win. It's one of my top five films of the year. Like I said, it's it's a who done it. but it but the way it's handled by Justine Triette and her co-screenwriter Arthur Harari makes it feel fresh. like, like you're in uncharted uncharted territory of a movie that you haven't really seen before. And you have to go to kind of experience what I mean by that. So it never fails to grip. It's a little long. It's about two and a half hours long. Mm. The actor who plays her, her lawyer is very good as well. He's a French actor named Swan Arlo. A lot of good performances in this movie. The courtroom stuff is fascinating because it's a little different than U.S. courts. As you watch the movie, you'll see some things that would not be allowed in a U.S. courtroom, I would say. That are kind of interesting where the defendant can kind of just talk randomly to lawyers uh, during testimony, whether she's on the the testimony stand or not. So really interesting stuff. Love this movie. Huller is fantastic. This is one of the best performances of the year. I think the best actress race is a three-horse race. It'll be her. Uh, Emma Stone for Poor Things and Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon. But I would not have any problem with Huller winning the Oscar for Best Actress.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me ask you that. Let's dissect a little bit the performance. Mm-hmm. What is it about her performance in a role like this?
7: So she's got a lot of big scenes, both in court and outside of court. Uh, she's got the big scene I explained on the audio tape with her with her husband uh, that's recorded secretly by her husband. Um and just the look on her face as she is faced with the dilemma of am i going to get charged with a crime here what's going on you know and but the audience has no idea if she did it or not you know did he did he get pushed did he fall what what happened here so the look on her face i think from the beginning of the film to the end she 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 conveys all the emotions of someone who's under stress who's under stress her husband just died And then the further stress of, we've all watched these true crime things, actually. Who do they point the finger at first? The spouse, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, et cetera. They're often crimes of passion. It's often crimes of passion, but you really have no idea what's going on here. And I think she wears that emotion on her sleeve, on her face. She's a wonderful actress. I've seen her in a few other things, like Tony Erdman. She's also in the zone of interest, which I'll review next week, a supporting part in that. You just feel... All the stress that someone must be going under, whether she did or did not do it. And you need to go see the movie to figure this out. But it's a wonderful performance. It's a very showy performance. I think her and Emma Stone really carry the big do the heavy lifting in their performances in the two films I'm talking about. Lily Gladstone, I wish, would have had a bigger part in Killers of the Flower Moon, as I told you when it, when we reviewed that. But Huller is great, and she just wears, wears it on her sleeve, the emotion and the stress of someone under stress.
0: Hmm. Why do you think people are so drawn to these true crime kind of movies? Is I, it the solving the puzzle?
7: I have no idea. And as you've seen on Facebook, Ashley, the— the cliche is is women are watching these true crime shows. It tends to be more. I, I can't quantify that, yeah. but there's almost no, there's it's, always
0: it's overwhelmingly there's, there's, female. There's
7: always jokes online that oh, I'm just going to get in my jammies and watch true crime. You know, I, yeah. I have friends, I have female friends that love this stuff, and I don't know why it is or what it is, but we want to know the mystery and we want to know what makes people snap and what Mm -hmm. makes people do things that you could never imagine yourself doing, hopefully, uh, you or I. Uh, I think I'm safe in saying that (laughs) with (laughs) Ashley and I chatting here. Uh, But I think there's something fascinating about it and we have access to uh, so many shows like CSI. But as you know, in real life, things aren't solved in 56 (laughs) minutes and 46 seconds or an hour. And in here we got two and a half hours of a a major movie that I think is going to win some Oscars and be up for some Oscars. I think it will be up for Best Picture, too. It's about half in English, half in French. I want to let my listeners know that. If you're going, it is not completely subtitled. Huller's character speaks English through much of the film until she's forced to speak French uh, during the trial. Anatomy of a Fall now playing at theaters. Uh, Check your listings.
0: All right, the lead actress is German. In 2007, so a 2006 um, film year, a German language film did win the best foreign language film. The All Lives Star. of Others. All right, we've been to the movies with Madeline.
8: You could say Dylan LeBlanc went to school at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. tom brusso on the next great american folk show dylan whose dad worked as a session player at the soul and rock hit factory talks about his new southern fried gothic album coyote plus north dakota cowboy poet jonathan oderman bassist sean supra and twin cities indie artist christine sacco and sarah mcquade out of the uk the great american folk show saturday at 5 p.m central on prairie public
0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. When you hear a word like baby, you might think a word like cute. But that's not always true, especially not of certain birds. Here's an episode of Bird Note. This is Bird Note. Most baby
8: birds are adorable little floops, but not all of them. Baby Estrell did finches look downright creepy. About 140 species of estrildid finches, including waxbills, parrot finches, and fire finches, are spread across Africa, Asia, and Australia. Newborn finches beg their parents for food, mouths wide open. The tongue and palate are strangely spotted and ringed. Most species' chicks have mouth markings in colors ranging from black or white to bright yellow, orange, red, or blue. The function of these markings has long puzzled scientists. Some say that they make baby beaks visible to parents, delivering food to poorly lit nests. Others think the markings signal the health of the chicks. And there's a third school of thought. Other birds target the nest of some African finches for egg dumping, sneaking their eggs into the finches' nest. And those foster chicks have similar colorful markings. So perhaps mouth markings evolved due to competition for food between finch babies and those other bird babies. It's not yet settled whether foster babies mimic the mouths of finch babies or vice versa. Either way, they look equally bizarre. For Bird Note, I'm Mary McCann.
5: This is Dakota Date Book for January 18th. Father John Malo was ordained in Montreal and sent to Dakota Territory in 1879 to work with the indigenous people. He settled in the area near the Turtle Mountains. Not having a church building, he said mass in settlers' homes and led open-air masses. He also constructed a rough chapel, a small log building with a dirt floor and three wooden benches that served as pews. A simple wooden table served as the altar. Father Malo was one of the earliest white settlers in the area that would include the town of St. John. St. John is about 10 miles from the Canadian border. It's small, covering about one half square mile, and has fewer than 400 residents. The town was laid out in 1882, three years after Father John's arrival. It was named for Father Malo's parish in Quebec. But Father Malo is not credited as the founder of the town. That honor goes to Arthur Foussard, Boussard was born in France. He emigrated to Manitoba, where he ran a hotel and a livery stable before moving to Dakota Territory, settling on the edge of the Turtle Mountains. He established the town of St. John, where he ran a general store and a mill. Life was not easy in such an isolated town. Getting supplies is hard, and there were periodic clashes with the indigenous people of the Turtle Mountains. In 1895, settlers had fear of a massacre, Taking his role as town founder seriously, Foussard was active in a local militia. He also worked to get the railroad extended to St. John. Foussard passed away on January 16, 1932. On this date, that year, it was announced that his funeral would be held on January nineteenth in St. Paul. Although St. John remains a small town, it sees a fair bit of tourist traffic. Visitors are attracted by the hiking trails and lakes in the summer, and the spectacular foliage in the fall. A tourist site describes St. John as having, quote, all the charming characteristics we love about a small town, unquote. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Bill Thomas filling in for Merrill Pepcorn.
0: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota.
1: And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Mountain, the middle with Jeremy Hobson, the U.S.'s
0: relationship with China. What do we think it should be? And at 7 o'clock Central, it's Science Friday. Coming up Monday on Main Street, we'll have just passed the anniversary of the death of the inimitable. Peggy Lee. We re-air a conversation with Mo Rocca from CBS News about why he wanted to write a mobituary on North Dakota's famous daughter. That's Monday. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.